Hello and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy, and a flickering board full of arrivals and departures, featuring the life cycle of the Emperor Moth lived out in a day on an Irish bog, the comings and goings of Insta-travel, and the music of exile from a concert in Paris. But we begin with the films of Laura Sheeran. Uniquely, certainly among Irish ensembles, Crash Ensemble currently has a resident filmmaker. Laura Sheeran began her career singing and songwriting in various bands, but in more recent times has been creating films for Crash commissions, both used on stage with the group's live performances and standalone musical films, moving from elusive abstraction to, in her latest work with Crash, evocative documents of the creative process. This latter set of films for Crash's reactions project of new music commissions gets a big screen debut next week and ahead of that Laura Sheeran showed Culture File the contents of her Dropbox. Here we go. Okay let me show you one of the videos that I made for a piece by Diamanda Labergadram called Arena. It's like relentless and to me this kind of feels like what it was like a bit during during lockdown. It was just like, yeah, when is this going to end? You got, there's only very, very tight close-ups. Yeah, um, yeah, because it just felt to me like it was going to add more pressure to the feeling by being that intensely close to what was happening. Got some of the, um, the score you were talking about up on the screen there now, uh, which it seemed to drown there. Yeah, um, I submerged the sheet music into a, a container of water for this one. What I learned from the experiment was that you get two layers of the music because there's the layer that the camera picks up through the surface of the water. But then there's also the layer at the base of the container. It's a see-through container. So where the paper actually is beneath the water then is like this other split it's like a split screen so I was playing around with that a lot and um, it's a sort of split screen in pure physics though yeah like it's analogue that's the word I started singing with groups, um, various groups, from the age of around 15. Um, Initially, I began singing with a group called Fovia Hex. My dear friend, Cloda Simmons, is the writer and creator um, of Fovia Hex. And I knew her through my dad, and she invited me to come into the studio with her. So that was my first experience of singing and recording, and she used to let me sit in on a lot of her editing sessions so I would get to see how songs were created and she has a really unique way of working and so that was a huge inspiration to me at that age and I progressed to learn as much about production as I could and learn how to record my own sounds and how to edit music so I learned a lot by doing This piece is a completely different vibe to the last one that we watched. Um, And there's a lot of electronic processing going on 
during the recording session, during the process of performing the piece to record it, um, this piece shows Alex um, taking a feed from Roddy, who's playing trombone, and he's sending the signal through the tam-tam, which is making the tam-tam reverberate and create sound, which then they're picking up and recording back into the um, program. So we have kind of a three-layer processing of the sound going on. So I focused a lot more on the process of the recording in this video and it's much more um, documentary style. Like it's just showing the process because it's a very unique thing that they're doing. I am not a, a gear nerd really, I have to say. Um, I kind of wish I was, but despite many attempts at being one, it just is not, it's not me. I think because I have learned everything through doing, I didn't really go the traditional route of studying or, you know, like going through any university or college or anything. So when I first started, I had one camera literally, and I just needed to um, feel like I knew absolutely everything that that camera could do before I moved on and so I had one camera and one lens and slowly over time as I felt like I had learned everything about that thing then I'd get another piece of equipment and then I'd wait until I feel like I'd mastered that and then I'd get another piece of equipment and I mean at this stage the work that I make I'm not thinking about my gear at all when I'm in a room like that um, I just have the most stripped back streamline camera kit that you can imagine. For me, the, having that kind of um, fluidity with the equipment is much more important. So for example, now with the Crash 25th birthday concerts that are coming up, I would have been sent the um, music or, you know, the, the pieces that are going to be performed, they would have sent those to me, you know, over a month ago. So I have been kind of assimilating the music and thinking, how do I see what I'm hearing in my mind? And then it's up to me to kind of generate the imagery that I feel accompanies that or complements that. And not in a way that distracts from the performance, because ultimately the piece is the focus. It's all about the music, but just in a way that can kind of help create a more fleshed out world for the music to sit in. Laura Sheeran there and the 17 short pieces of her reaction series are at the IFI in Dublin on Wednesday 30th of November as part of Crash Ensemble's 25th anniversary celebrations. "'Twas ever thus is a phrase that never really gets old. "'Twas ever thus, really. "'And this is especially true with travel, "'which from its earliest days has been spoiled by "'other people not doing it right. "'But for Tara Scanlon and her sister Rebecca, two incorrigible travellers, "'the rise of influencer-led social media-driven travel "'is a fresh hell, "'as we hear now in a long-distance catch-up call "'between sisters about their recent voyages into Instaland.' I'm just back from a two-week holiday in Jordan, in the Middle East. I went with my boyfriend, who is uh, originally from Jordan. We started in the capital city, Amman, and then went to the north to visit two of the very old Roman cities, Jerash and Umkais. And then we travelled down to the middle of the country to visit the Dead Sea. 
And then the last two days were spent in Petra, the really old city that you'd know from a lot of films like Lawrence of Arabia and Indiana Jones. The last stop was Aqaba in the south, which is beside the Red Sea. When you were there, and especially at the different tourist sites like Petra and that, did you notice many tourists there? Absolutely. I was so shocked because Jordan's not one of the typical countries that you hear people visiting. So when I was going, you know, it was October, I expected it would be quite quiet. But every place we went to was packed with tourists, yeah. When I was in Lisbon over the summer, I was just sick of the constant crowds. It just made me become really aware of the different behaviour that tourists displayed. And it made me think, what exactly is a tourist? The Cambridge Dictionary defines a tourist as a person who travels and visits for pleasure and interest. So this would definitely align with what I understand a tourist to be. Someone who is drawn to visit a place by their desire to experience a culture and history through different things like architecture, the arts, food, the natural landscape. What do you think a tourist is? Yeah, I 100% agree with what you said there and that definition. I think another important thing to add there would be escapism. Particularly now after, you know, the pandemic, people are able to travel a bit more freely again. And, you know, we've been stuck in the one place for so long. Definitely. I think what it is to be a tourist has changed over time. Because, you know, looking at tourism in the past, I definitely agree with that idea of people traveling to satisfy their cultural interests. The modern tourists I observed when I was in Lisbon seem to have been taken over by a wave of mass social media usage. The activities of sightseeing, tours and dining, they've turned into video and photo shoots. They were so fixated with documenting everything that they're just forgetting to live in the moment and giving their full attention to surely what they came to see in the first place. Where I would have noticed that more is in a lot of European capital cities. It was very obvious who's there for the photo shoot and who's there to actually see the sights and, you know, be a tourist. Did I actually ever tell you about what happened to me when I went to Belem Tower? No, I didn't hear about this. Bellam Tower, I was very interested in seeing. It was built in the 16th century as a defensive fort protecting Lisbon from incoming raids on the Tagus River. So naturally, of course, if there's a sign with history, I'm going to read it. And the next minute I hear, can you move? And I turn around and there's this girl dressed up to the nines, impeccable makeup and these chunky heeled shoes. I was so shocked, I just edged away slowly. And the next minute she starts posing up a storm in front of Bellam Tower. And one pose wasn't enough. One photo wasn't enough. Yeah. As I said earlier, like it's always so obvious when you go to well-known tourist attractions, you know who's there because they want to learn about the history of it and who's there for the great Instagram photo. A lot of people will go to a place because they've seen it on a travel blog or an Instagram post and say, oh, I'd love to go there. It looks great. Have you ever seen something on Instagram of tourist nature and thought, oh, I'd like to visit that? Yeah, I've I had a look like just before the trip to Jordan, I did follow two travel bloggers who had been there. But it was nice to kind of get an idea in advance of sort of what to expect. And I think that's important. Sometimes people might have reservations before going to a certain country and they might like to do a bit of research. And getting the visual that might have been available a couple of years ago is really helpful, I think. Having social media there with pictures and videos of the tourist destinations we want to go and see, do we know too much in advance And is the sense of, you know, discovering a place for yourself drowned out by these ideas that are being pushed in front of you and promoted by social media users? I got to work in the tourism industry for two years. I really got to see how important social media platforms can be for destination marketing. It showcases the country's spectacular landscapes, gives you an overall view of the culture, the history 
tourism companies are like, oh, we need to actually create lists like the most Instagrammable places to visit in a certain country to attract this whole new group of tourists as well. Another pro, I think, is what social media has done to the economies for a lot of the countries. Again, to use Jordan as an example, 90% of the jobs in Jordan are all in the tourism industry. Where is your next holiday going to be? Oh, it'll be a while off now, Tara, but I can tell you, I am very excited to come back to Ireland for Christmas and have a delicious Irish mammy-cooked Christmas dinner. Tara Scanlon and her sister Rebecca there on the floating world of Insta travel. Well, coming up next week, we have a special edition of the Culture File Weekly centering on nature writing, recorded live at this year's Dublin Book Festival in the National Botanic Gardens, with Paddy Woodworth and a panel selecting some favourite volumes of essential nature writing. We'll have the whole thing next Saturday, December 3rd, but today we have a little taste of the event with photographer Tina Claffey choosing Henry David Thoreau's most famous book, which led her to remember an extraordinary encounter with the moth on an Irish bog. So Tina, your final choice brings us to one of the great classics of nature writing, Henry David Thoreau's Walden. Yes, this is a gift I received from John Feehan, uh, the first edition of Walden uh, from Henry David Thoreau, published in 1854, even has the the smell of the ancients in it. Um, An absolutely wonderful piece of writing. Um, And it really is the story of of Henry's account of his experiences over the course of two years, two months, and two days um, in his self-sufficient home that he built himself in woodland at the edge of Walden Pond um, in the New England woods in Massachusetts. Um, By the end of that adventure of over two years, um, he had gained a tremendous enlightenment about nature and and really how to view the world. Um, The book itself, I suppose, is is a call to abandon a materialistic existence for for a simple life and to find spiritual truth through awareness and undistracted undistracted attention in nature. Um, So there's many, many quotations within it that really resonate with me. Um, But just to describe what he he says, he says, I went to to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life, and see if I could not learn what it had to teach, and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. Which is many parallels there with, um, with Mary Oliver, with her When Death Comes poem. Um, but as I say, there, there are many observ- observations within this book that really resonate with me. Um, one of them is, live in each season as it passes. Breathe the air, drink the drink, taste the fruit, and resign yourself to the influence of the earth. This is, uh, really resonates deeply with me because I, I visit the bog regularly throughout the seasons and I find it really essential for me to do that because to me it's like a language that I'm constantly learning. Um, each bog to me has, a, has its own presence, like it's, it's an ancient soul and, and to be present using all my senses to witness and experience the cycles of life within the living, breathing carpet it changes by the minute, by the hour, by the day, by the season. And it really keeps me grounded and in communication with nature. I find it really, really important for me. I find myself, actually, if I go to a bog sometimes, if I haven't been there in a while, that I'm, I'm silently apologising to it. <laughs> <laughs> I really am, you know. Um, and 
I, I asked nature to, to, to forgive me and, and beg her to, to show me something. And they always, if I follow my gut and my instinct, I'm brought down a different path and something is revealed to me when I slow down and only when I slow down. Um, there's, there's, I have other quotations as well. Can I go ahead? Um, I found in myself and still find an instinct toward a higher or as it's named spiritual life, as do most men and another toward a primitive rank and savage one, and I reverence them both. I love the wild, not less than the good. Um, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm religious in any way, but I would see wild nature as my church. Um, I have moments of the divine out there. Um, by freeing my mind and, and absorbing what nature is showing me, the bigger picture is revealed. Um, much of the creatures out there ooze this self-assured knowing that I, I really find hard to put into words. Um, and I thank all of them that allow me to take their portrait. Um, I, I can just tell about one experience um, I had. I, I, an emperor moth caterpillar that I'd been looking after for quite a while, um, I watched grow as a tiny caterpillar. And eventually, this particular day, it emerged after nine months. I felt like... I feel like a mother myself. It emerged out of this um, cocoon. And because she was drying her wings, I could get up really close. And she, she's completely unfazed by me being there. But the most amazing thing happened while I was photographing her. Um, this, the male arrived to, to mate with her while I was photographing her. And I couldn't believe, I couldn't believe my luck. But um, the male can detect her from up to four kilometers away because when they emerge, when the female emerges, she re releases a pheromone, which is a chemical signature into the air. And um, he arrived. And all I can say is they stayed together for like half an hour. I was right beside them. And the sense of peace, it was like a, this golden light and this sense of peace with them because they had fulfilled their, their life purpose because his life purpose is to find her and continue his bloodline and her purpose is to reproduce. And within, they stayed together for about half an hour. I went for every single angle, thanking them all the time. And then he left. And then about two hours later, she laid her eggs. And um, so I was photographing the eggs and she stayed with the eggs. And then right before my eyes, she started to deteriorate. Um, her wings became ragged and her colors all started to fade away. And she, but she stayed with the eggs and then she fluttered her wings and up she flew, up over my head and up and off. And it was divine and tragic, and, but incredibly peaceful at the same time. It was like her, her work was done, her life was fulfilled, and off she went for the rest of her few days, I imagine, that she had left. But to see that cycle from, from caterpillar to adult to like, that whole cycle, it was just such a privilege. And um, I suppose that... that that's the essence of, of to, to capture that, to have the honor of capturing that was, was mind-blowing. Thank you. 
Tina Claffey on some moments of wonder on an Irish bog. You can hear the whole of The Naturalist Bookshelf live at 6.30pm on Saturday, December 3rd. Don't forget, equally essentially, the current culture file debate on the new ethics and aesthetics of football is available right now on the Culture File weekly page on the Lyrics site and, as ever, via the very handy medium of podcast, details of which you'll also find on the Culture File weekly page. And finally, this time on the Culture File Weekly, some musique sans frontières, which, as well as being a proper aspiration, is also the name of an organisation set up by Limerick woman in Paris, Fiona Olivier. A visit to the unofficial refugee camp at Calais a few years back led Olivier and some friends from Meudon near Paris to create a platform for exiled musicians through concerts and school visits. The latest of these happens this weekend, and ahead of that, Fiona Olivier talk to Culture File about music and movements. My name is Fiona, uh, born Fiona Costello. I grew up in Patrickswell in West Limerick and I met a French man in university, in Dublin City University and we got married and I ended up in, in France where I've been now for about 25 years. I live just outside uh, Paris. If you were standing at the Eiffel Tower and you uh, cycled or ran along the Seine River out towards Versailles, I'm about 10 minutes out. And actually, I cycle to work, so I'm very familiar with that route. I studied at the Limerick School of Music for many, many years, from the age of seven up until I went to university. Uh, My father played the fiddle. My maternal uh, grandmother played the fiddle. So I was always sort of interested as well in in the Irish traditional music. That's actually what I'm playing a little bit more of now, is the Irish stuff. I think, you know, when you're living away from home, you get a little bit more attached to uh, some of the the culture. When you're away from it, you have more of an appreciation for it, I think. There's a great um, number of musicians in France that play Irish music. There's quite a scene here. Um, Now, personally, I'm not always in the pubs playing music. The, the, the pub scene with the sessions um, with the French, it's not exactly the same as what it would be at home, which is a little bit more relaxed and there's a bit of the crack and the chat. Here it's a little bit more um, intense. And then every so often we have some Irish musicians coming to Paris. And in fact, Jerry O'Connor, that great Irish fiddler from uh, Dundalk, is in Paris at the moment and I did a masterclass with him last week. I was the only Irish person in the, the room, everybody else was not Irish. remember back in 2015 at the height of the Syrian refugee exodus there was the very um, moving picture of that three-year-old child on a beach in Turkey a little boy called Alan and I remember like many people seeing that photograph and being very um, disturbed by it and asking myself you know what can I do as just a citizen faced with this crisis and It just happened that I read an article in a newspaper that day which talked about um, some English musicians who had done a collection of instruments and who were driving to Calais to distribute them in the camp. I just contacted them and I said, listen, I'm based in Paris, play the fiddle. Um, Could I join you? They had guitars and flutes, some beautiful instruments that they had collected around the UK. And we just sort of took out the instruments and started to play. 
and clearly I'm no expert in, you know, Afghan music or Senegal music or Syrian music. But, you know, you just kind of jam along a little bit and you could see the joy in their faces and these very moving um, moments. And it, it really made me realise the power of music, that when you can't actually speak and communicate, that something was happening. There was a, an incredible connection taking place. So after I left Calais that first time and, and came home, I wanted to go back, but I wanted to go back in some sort of a, a semi-official capacity because, remember, Calais, uh, known as the jungle, was not an official refugee camp. And so it was a very difficult place to be, not just for um, uh, for the people who were eking out a living there, but even for people coming to visit. So I set up an association which I called Musique Sans Frontières Paris, Music Without Border Paris, and then I went back with a bunch of Irish musicians, actually, we went up. This time we were a bit more organised and we'd arranged to do things with um, some of the local NGOs that were operating up there. So, for example, I played, for example, in the women's centre, which I was the only one allowed into. After that, we decided, OK, what else could we do? So we started to organise concerts in the town where I live with the objective of getting musicians who are exiled, whether they were migrants, um, refugees, professional musicians or non-professional musicians, to give them the opportunity to get back on the stage and to perform again. Because a lot of the time they're here and they're not able to exert their, 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 their profession as a musician because they're just trying to survive. <laughs> At the end of that first concert, we actually all ended up singing Christmas carols around the grand piano in the community centre. Um, so French Christmas carols with the Tibetan pop star, an Afghan storyteller, um, these French musicians who played Irish music. Afterwards, I had a lot of people come to me and say, listen, that was a real happening. And that's when we had the idea to do workshops in schools and then to try and do a solidarity concert every year. The event planned for uh, this, this year is with Orpheus 21. So what we will have on stage on Sunday, we will have six uh, musicians and a storyteller from countries such as Syria, Iran. Uh, there's a Kurdish musician and there's a, a Turkish musician. And then the narrator is French. be playing a mixture of um, instruments that I think will be interesting. For me, it's also a discovery because, you know, I'm not that familiar with uh, the instruments from the Middle East and, and um, from some certain parts of Asia. So we'll have a mixture of instruments such as the tar, we'll have the, um, I, I'm not even sure how to pronounce some of these instruments, maybe after the weekend I'll be better, but um, the Comanche, the, um, the Quanon. Um, the oud, so some of these are stringed instruments, some of them are slightly wind instruments. There's a flute, an Arabian flute called the ney, which apparently sounds like wind. <laughs> I'm sure that there are uh, talented 
uh, artists and musicians in the direct provision centres who would jump at a chance to be included and we would be only delighted to share our experience of what we're trying to do because, listen, at the end of the day, we are four middle-aged women who know nothing about this kind of stuff. You know, we're, we're not experts in migration. Um, I'm an amateur musician. Two of the girls are teachers. One is a maths teacher and a physics teacher. The other is an English teacher. So this is not our expertise. So if four middle-aged women can do something like this, then it's in the hands of anybody. Fiona Olivier there, and if you are in the neighbourhood, this year's concert from Orpheus 21 takes place at the Art and Culture Centre in Meudon on Sunday. And that brings to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly. We'll be back with more musical integration next week on your radio and in your feed. Till then, bye now. <laughs>